So we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible here at Hope, and that brings us to a lot of passages. Uh, some, I, I honestly, I, I come to them sometimes the week before, and I think, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Uh, many times we come to passages that are, that are just hard. Uh, the Judas passage a couple of weeks was a difficult passage, and, um, you know, I, 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 it's sort of heavy to bring it to you. Um, this passage today, uh, it is a passage that I'm excited to preach. I was excited uh, to come to it earlier this week. Matt's been out of town. The school's been on winter break. You know, it's been raining. This place, by the way, when it's dark in here, it is creepy. Uh, it is really creepy, and I've been, I've been all alone in there um, all week long, but this, this passage has been so fun uh, to study, and I look forward to bringing it to you. This is the passage that God, in his providence, had for us today, and I think it's a, it's a timely passage. I would go so far as to say if, if I knew that I was going to get to preach one passage uh, to, to a certain group of people, I would preach this one, all right? So I know that's high praise. It's a passage you're going to be familiar with. Let me pray. Uh, I don't want to take for granted uh, that, uh, that I'm going to be able to deliver this uh, without the help of the Holy Spirit working in your hearts. So let me pray and we will get started. Father, it is, it is your word that changes hearts. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Uh, Father, I pray that, that you would move us to study all of your word, the hard parts, Leviticus, Ezekiel, but God, I pray that you would especially help us to implant uh, this portion of scripture, to memorize it, to chew on it, to think about it, to meditate on it, and Father, I pray that that as I preach this passage this morning, uh, that this passage would bear fruit in the lives of the people of hope, and that that fruit would bear uh, fruit in Savannah, Georgia, wherever you take us. So I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the passage. I believe it will be familiar to you. Uh, this is John 14, 1 through 6, by the way. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? But I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Uh, Randy Alcorn shares this story in the introduction to his book on heaven. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She, had hardly, she could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in the boat alongside told her she was close and she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out of the water. It wasn't until she was in the boat 
that she discovered that the shore was less than half a mile away. And at a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. If I could have just seen the shore, I would have made it. So that story is a really good picture of the Christian life. And the fog around us is all the things that blind us from our destination. And the question that I want to ask as we start this morning, it's a really important question, especially today, even in, in light of what uh, Tony, Tony, Tony and I have been, we, we've been clearly uh, working off some of the same material this week. The question I want to ask is this, how do you encourage a struggling Christian? Someone who, like Florence, is struggling to see clearly, is struggling to see the, nest, the destination, somebody who is despairing, somebody who perhaps even wants to give up. Do you point them to heaven, or does that seem old-fashioned and quaint and simplistic? We have lingered for four weeks in John 13 because I believed that it was very, very important for us to establish the context for everything that Jesus is going to say in, in verses in chapters 14 through 16. The theme that I believe ties all of that together in chapter 13, if you remember, is Jesus' statement uh, in verse 7. You don't understand this now, but you will. The foot washing. Jesus, what do you mean that I got to wash people's feet? This was not part of my kingdom plan. The betrayal. Somebody is going to betray me. One of your own number is going to betray Jesus. And then the announcement that he is going to go away and they cannot come where he is going. And then finally, Peter's denial. Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times before the end of the evening. And I want you to see how disorienting those things are to those 11 young men. They don't understand. They came expecting a festival. Instead, instead Jesus has, has dropped a series of bombs on them that are going to turn their world upside down. And this is very relevant because there are brothers and sisters in Christ right now who are struggling, who are troubled. They are discouraged. They are depressed. They are exhausted. Their dreams of a career and a happy family have, have been abandoned. And if you aren't one who is personally troubled right now, I would just about guarantee that you know someone who is. And so our Lord, when his disciples were at their lowest... And things are going to continue to be low. When they are the most confused, he comforts them by speaking to them about heaven. And if you think teaching about heaven is too simplistic to address practical problems in this life, then you are saying, I don't think Jesus knows what he's talking about. And hopefully you don't want to do that. Our passage this morning, I would suggest to you, represents, and this is why I think it is so timely, the very foundations of Christian comfort. Here is Jesus, at his lowest, by the way, comforting these 12 young disciples with promises of heaven. And so I want us today to learn how best to comfort ourselves and each other by looking at this passage. I want to submit to you that John 14 Verses 1 through 6, 7, present us with three glorious realities that will help us keep our eyes on the shore. And these are the three realities. First of all, the foundation of our comfort is faith. Secondly, the promise of our comfort is a place. And then finally, the route to that comfort is the risen Savior. 
That's what the Lord is going to reveal to us through this passage this morning. And the question I have for you is, specifically, and we'll come back to this at the end, do you want to be comforted by Jesus? This world is hard to live in, but it's always been hard to live in. That's the result of sin. Genesis 3, if you are looking for a quick fix to your problems, then you are going to be dismissive of Jesus' words here. Because Jesus directs us to faith, and he directs us to heaven, and he directs us to the exclusivity of his message. So like Florence Chadwick, many Christians who feel exhausted and surrounded by dense fog need to hear Jesus' teaching, just like what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 4, 3, rather, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. I always say, you may have heard it said, you know, that person who is so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, you've never met that person. I'll guarantee it. Because a person who is truly heavenly-minded will be of the most earthly good. All right, so let's unpack this passage this morning. Verse 1, the foundation of our comfort is faith. The foundation of our comfort is faith. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Okay, this is a continuation of everything we've read in chapter 13. Chapter divisions came much later, okay? So the, the chapter divisions are not inspired. Jesus is not launching into something different and unrelated. I picture Jesus sitting at the table, and he's delivered his bad news, and he's looking around, and he's looking at these faltering faces around him. And I picture him saying, this is, a, this is almost a command. I picture him maybe getting a little firm. Guys, listen, stop being troubled. He doesn't say don't be troubled. They're already troubled. He says stop being troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. I think there's good reason to believe that these 11 young men are rethinking the whole last three years of their lives. The one they have pledged their lives to, the one they have said they would die for, has now revealed the existence of a traitor in their midst and that he is going to depart from them. Remember, they have staked their lives on the fact that he is the Messiah. And they thought they were in on the, the ground floor of the kingdom. They were even arguing about who was going to get the corner office. So for the last three years, they have woken up every morning, and he has been there, and he has provided for them, and he has taken care of their problems. He has healed diseases. Whenever they needed it, he intervened. But now plans have changed, and things aren't going to work out like they expected. He is leaving them, and things are going to be different. And that's why Jesus says, believe in me, believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in a God that you can't see, which is good. Now it's time to exercise your faith in me because I'm him. Jesus is God, and they are going to continue to be in their care. That's why he says down in verse 7, if you had known me, you would known the Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. This is what he's saying. Look, you boys are good Jews. You believe in God. You've seen me in action. You've heard my words. You've seen my miracles. Now is the time to put that belief into action. That trouble that you feel is real, 
but you're going to have to start living by faith. I'm still going to take care of you. I will never leave you or forsake you, but I'm not going to be with you physically anymore. Jesus' first answer to trouble is faith. That is his answer. Brothers and sisters, this is so unsophisticated. This is so simplistic. Jesus is calling his disciples to old-timey, rubber-meets-the-road faith. Do you really believe that he is who he says he is? So, for many of us, a lot has changed since February of 2020. Plans have changed. Families have changed. Work has changed. School has changed. When I look around and I make an honest assessment of the world around me, I, too, am troubled. Just like what Tony said earlier. What's it going to look like to be a Christian in America moving forward? I don't know. What if I lose my job because I can't check all those boxes that they want me to check? What kind of world will my children and my grandchildren grow up in? How will I live without all the things that I've lost? And I believe many of us are very much like these disciples. We have at times made the mistake of thinking that we were already living in that kingdom. And we thought everything was going to just continue as it was. And we thought the future was brimming with potential. But now things are different and we're anxious and we're troubled. And we are very clear that things can and do change. And Jesus says to us, just as he says to his disciples, don't be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, trust me. Family, and that's what we are, we are family. Do not underestimate the importance of faith in your daily life. Faith in Jesus is the ground of our hope. The writer of Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. By grace we have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one should boast. Over and over again, the scriptures proclaim the righteous shall live by faith. So to live by faith is to put your trust in Christ right now, whom you cannot see. So if you are a Christian, you have put your faith in Christ. You have put your faith in his sacrificial death and his forgiveness of sins. There's no other way to be saved. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But there must be faith in him right now. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Peter says, in him, you have everything you need for life and godliness right now. Everything. So if the U.S. government falls apart, Christ will take care of us. If your body fails you, if you walk out of here this week, God forbid, and find out that you have a terrible physical diagnosis, Christ will take care of you. If you lose your job for his sake, he will take care of you. If your family and your closest friends forsake you, he will not forsake you. Everything that we need, we have for the here and now, not just for eternity. Satan is going to throw everything at you to try to keep you to lose your, from, to, 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 to get you to lose your faith. How do I know that? Because Paul tells us, Ephesians 6, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Some of you are getting pummeled right now because your shields are down. And without faith, we are sitting ducks. Faith is both believing in who Christ is and trusting in his promises. And I know some of you are sitting here thinking, but that just seems so impractical. Of course it's impractical. As Christians, we're putting our trust in things we can't see. Everybody else thinks that's crazy. 
But biblical faith is trusting in the things we can't see. And that's why faith is so rare these days. So stop being troubled. Trust in me. The foundation of our comfort is faith. Secondly, the promise of our comfort is a place. The promise of our comfort is a place. Let me read it to you. Two and three. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That probably sounds very different than maybe the way you memorized it. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. All right, so this passage of Scripture contains a wonderful promise. Chances are many of you memorized this in Sunday school as a child. If you haven't, I would say John 14, 1 through 6 would be a great passage to set to memory. And maybe you learned this passage from the King James Version. In the King James Version, it says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. And this is a better translation. It's rooms. It's dwellings. In my Father's house, there are many living spaces. So I've been through this imagery before with this congregation, but I want to do it again because I want you to understand how this wedding imagery that Jesus is using here is so important uh, to understanding certain passages in the Scripture. So let me just talk to you for a second about a Jewish wedding, okay? Ancient, to some extent still today. So as you know from uh, Mary and Joseph, because we cover this every year at Christmas, an engagement like we talk about these days is not what they had. They had a betrothal. You were were married. You you couldn't break a betrothal. You had to get a divorce. So once a man betrothed himself to a young woman, uh, he would then leave, and he would go back to his father's house, and he would build a room onto his father's house. He would work on it. If, if you go to the Middle East today, you will see in places houses, dwellings that are, that are three stories, three or four stories high, and, and that they may be apartments on the top floor and the second floor, but the, the third and the fourth floor are still empty. Like, nobody's turned those. Those are there for the sons to, to build their dwellings there in the father's house. And while the groom is working, the bride is preparing herself for when he returns. When the work is done, the groom would then return for the bride, and there would be a parade. There would, all the people would come, people would, would clap. That's where we have the friend of the bridegroom. Remember, John the Baptist calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. So his job is to announce the coming of the bridegroom. Here he comes, He's coming. He's coming to get his bride. And if you remember, John the Baptist says, my work is done because I've announced that he's coming. And so no self-respecting friend of the bridegroom would continue to try to be on display. He would fade off into the distance. And once the groom arrives at the bride's house, then the party begins. And it would last for days. It would go on and on. And that eventually, he would bring her home to be with him. And once again, that's what she's been waiting for. She's excited about that. And this Jewish wedding imagery, it's all over the Bible. Jesus, in in Matthew 25, tells the story of the ten virgins. These virgins are friends of the bride, and they're waiting for the return of the bridegroom. They're waiting for the party, but they weren't prepared, and they had to go into town and get oil for their lamps. And while they were gone, the bridegroom came And he came and he went into the house and they weren't there. And he locks the door. And when he returns, when they return rather, 
They're shut out from the party. And Jesus warns at the end of the parable, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So in this parable, Jesus is the bridegroom and he is going to return for his bride. And in light of eternity, it would be very, very foolish of us to not be ready. So when you understand these ancient Jewish wedding customs, then I think you can understand better these references and the the apostles, the, the disciples would have known these references as well. So Jesus is going away. He's going to his father's house, but he's not just going there to hang out. He's going there to prepare a place for them, and when he is finished, he is going to come back and get them, and then they will be with him forever. Jesus is the groom. His followers are the bride. What does the bride do while she waits? She prepares herself so that she is ready. How should we live as followers of Christ while we await his return. We're preparing ourselves. So let's break this down here, these words of Jesus. First of all, our father has a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, all right? Turn with me to Revelation 21. I want you to look at this. Tony read the first part of that passage. Let's start in in verse 10. So, The same John who wrote the Gospel of John is given a vision of the New Jerusalem. In verse 9, an angel comes to John, and he says then, beginning in verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It's really important for you to note, by the way, that our final home will not be heaven, Our final home will be on this earth. The city of God will come down and exist on this earth, and God will dwell with human beings. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length is the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So it sounds very strange, but this city is of equal length, width, and height. So it's either a perfect cube, or I think more likely it's a pyramid, because that would be of equal height. And so to bring those dimensions into our contemporary measurements, we're talking about a city that stretches 1,500 miles in directions up and out. So there's more descriptions of jewels and streets of gold, but drop down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its city is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. And its light, by its light the nations will walk, for the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That city is presently in heaven. Jesus is there right now with his Father. 
He is making a place for you, if you are a follower of him, somewhere in that city right now. How do we know that? Because he told us. That's what he's telling us. Number two, he has gone to prepare a place for you. So we've been enjoying watching my mom's new house be built. That's really fun. You, we've watched it come all the way up from the foundations. She picked out her colors. She's picked out her floors. She's moved different things around, added things here and there. Things are like she wants it. But what if a person who knows you even better than yourself, the person who created you and, and created you to like all the things that you like, has promised that he is building a place for you in his father's house. All the sinful things about you will be gone, but the rest of you will be the same. And in heaven, you can look forward to enjoying the things that you enjoy now without sin. If you like to cook, you're going to like to cook. If you like to travel, you're going to like to travel. I think you're going to travel way, way further than you can travel now. If you like to build things, you're going to build things. I'm kind of hoping for like an indoor putting green and a sushi bar. I like those things, and I think I'm still going to like those things. If you are a Christian, your heavenly abode is there right now under construction, and it will be a dwelling that is perfectly designed for you. How is that for comfort? Why is this considered simplistic and out of date? The Bible actually says a lot about heaven, and there's no clouds or harps or chubby angel babies mentioned. It's this gigantic, beautiful city. It's rooms in the Father's house. It's rivers and trees. It's streets paved with gold, reunions with family and friends. This is our goal. And please notice, because this is so important for us to understand, this is not a promise for this life. Jesus is not promising that he is building a place for you in this life. There will continue to be trouble. Jesus never promises us to rescue us from the trouble of this world. He points us to the next. And then number three, he will come back and get us. So how does this work? When we die, is that when Jesus comes to get us? After we die, does he take us to that abode in the Father's house? I think that the answer is no. So not yet. I understand it that death, we go to be with Jesus, because that's what the Bible says, to be uh, absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. We go to be with Jesus. He is in heaven. The souls of those who have gone before us are there. I am not clear, but I suspect that they have some kind of temporary body. To me, this is a very mysterious part of the Bible. I don't understand it, but we know we go to be with Christ. But we are waiting, and so are the people in heaven, by the way, awaiting that Jesus will return to earth. And when Jesus returns, the dead will rise and receive their glorified bodies. And those who are alive will meet him in the air and will be glorified, and then he will take us to the Father's house in our glorified bodies. So our state after death will be wonderful. Hear me. We will be with the Lord. But the Christian hope is the resurrection, and that is what I think is often lost on people who mistakenly think that we just die here and we go to heaven, and that's the end of the story. All right. Number three, then, this is back to our original outline. The route to that comfort is the risen Savior. He says in verse four, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So first of all, we finally get to hear from an apostle other than Peter. Good old doubting Thomas speaks up and he says, Lord, how do we get there? Aren't you glad he asked? So here's the question. How does one get to the Father's house? How do I get to see that massive city? How can I know that I have a room there? And you should want to get there, and you should want to see that. Here's the answer that comes straight from Christ. Jesus is the way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. Number one, he is the way because he is the truth about God. Every single thing Jesus said and did reveals God. He should be studied, his words should be memorized, scrutinized, meditated on, read about him over and over again, because if you want to go to the Father, he is the way. Everything he said is truth. Anything contrary to what he has said is a lie. He is the way because he is the life of God. He is the truth in the life. He called himself the resurrection and the life. He is the one who has life in himself. We've seen that. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. By his death, we have life. By his blood, our sins are covered. And then third, he is the only way. He is the exclusive way. No one comes to the Father but through him. If you don't listen to him, believe in him, trust him, put your faith in him, then you cannot get to the Father. The, the exclusiveness of that claim puts us as followers of Christ at odds with the world. It matters. Peter says in Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our access to the one true God comes only through Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes it clear, Matthew seven thirteen. There are two ways. There is a way that leads to life, and there is a way that leads to destruction. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We saw there are two resurrections. We saw this in John chapter 5. One day, yes, those who are dead in Christ will be raised from the dead. But every single person ultimately will be resurrected. The dead in Christ will be raised to live forever with him in our Father's house. There is another resurrection. Listen to Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, John 14, 6 means everything or nothing. It is either God in the person of Jesus Christ telling us the way to the Father or else it is meaningless and we should all stop gathering on Sunday mornings. We here at Hope have staked our eternal lives on this
And we do so knowing that it is an act of rebellion against the world system. These are the implications. I just want to be clear. Like, let's be clear. These are the implications. There are not many ways to God. There is only one way. Other religions are false ways, idols, false gods, demons, lies. There's one way to God. Every person who has ever lived and perished in this world without Christ has entered into an eternity separated from God. There are no good people who have gotten into heaven even though they didn't profess Christ. This is what Jesus is saying. This is hard, but it should motivate us to work so that those around us do not suffer such an eternal fate. And there is much comfort in this passage. But our Lord concludes with this truth. If you want to go to the Father's house, you cannot go there apart from him. So I want to leave you with two quick questions this morning, and I think they're very important questions, and I think they arise from this text, and I want you to listen closely. I want you to deal with these questions in your heart. Number one, are you on the way to the Father's house? Most important question, is your heart stirred by these words? These are some great and precious promises from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is delivering them to his disciples in the midst of very real trouble. If your heart is cool to these promises, then I would ask you to consider that you may not be on the way. Our Lord himself has set before you two ways, one that leads to life and one that leads to an eternity of fire. There is no third path. And if you are not on the narrow road, please do not delay. Jesus warned in the parable of the ten virgins, be ready, for you do not know the time. One day the bridegroom will return and the party will begin. You don't want to be on the outside. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Secondly, and probably more relevant to most of us sitting here today, this is the second question I want to ask you. Do you want to be comforted by Jesus? Do you want to be comforted by Jesus? Jesus is speaking words of comfort to 11 troubled young men. God, very God is speaking words of comfort. If anyone knows how to comfort humanity, it's Jesus. And yet these words seem so simplistic. Faith, heaven, the way, the truth, and the life. If you find yourself having a hard time being comforted today, I'd like to ask you, have you come to Jesus for comfort? I mean, have you really come to him? Have you listened to Jesus? Because many professing Christians, I think if they're honest, find the actual words of Jesus inadequate to be comforted. Why is that? Well, first of all, it's because I think many Christians have their hearts set on the things of the world. You cannot be comforted by the things you can't see if you are consumed with the things you can see. And you will not be comforted by the next world if you love the things of this world. Jesus does not promise that things will get better in this life. He does not promise riches or health or success, or prosperity. He does not promise smooth sailing in relationships or family harmony. He does not promise a booming economy, a plague-free world, or a human government that works properly. He doesn't promise any of that. And if those are the things that you love more than anything else, you will not be comforted by Jesus. The Father's house will not help you. Faith will be a disappointment. Jesus knows these boys, and he knows the trouble is going to come. As Matt mentioned last week, 10 of the 11 will be murdered for their faith. 
the world would continue to be a source of trouble for them. Jesus says, trust me and focus on heaven. Can you imagine if today the professionals found out that Jesus was trying to comfort traumatized young men with these words, faith and heaven? If he wasn't laughed out of the room, he'd be escorted out of the room. Brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, if you find the words of comfort that Jesus offers to be inadequate, then there is no comfort for you. The world cannot provide for you lasting peace. You can pick up your phone, turn on your TV, buy something, smoke something, drink something, have your lusts stimulated by something. You can find someone who will direct your heart to you, to what you need, to what you love, to what you want to hear. You can find preachers who will promise you your best life right now in the here and now, and they can give you things to do and ways to give to try to make you feel better. Those things will cover over your trouble, but they will not bring you hope and peace and comfort. And it's time that the church had a reckoning with where we're looking for comfort, because Jesus himself gives it. And I think shockingly few professing Christians are willing to listen. We're going to sing a song in a few minutes. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Will you sing that in faith this morning and ask that the Holy Spirit will help you to mean it? If we are going to be a light to the world, then we must be people who practice what we preach. We must stand on the faith that we proclaim. We must let our lives be an actual demonstration of what we claim to believe. And hear me, in doing so, we will provide to the world an actual demonstration that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is, as the writer of Hebrews says, a rewarder of those who seek him. I want to close with just two verses, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. Paul commends the Thessalonians at the end of his first chapter, of which the chapter divisions are not inspired, but that's the best we have. He says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, talking about the Thessalonians here, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is our hope. We are the people who have been delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we wait for him to return, and we trust that he will deliver us from the wrath of God that is to come. Invest there, please. Let me pray. Father, you have given us these words so, so important. God, Help us to stand on these words. This is the firm foundation. This is the solid rock. All other ways are shifting sand. This is what you have told us. Father, give us eyes of faith to believe. Father, I pray that you would help us to repent of other sources of comfort. And may our lives be a demonstration of your glory and your truth and the fact that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.